The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning. This morning, our scripture reference is Acts 20, verses 17 through 38. And um, there are Bibles that are scattered amongst, underneath some of the chairs. Um, and that's going to be on page 929, or it's also going to be printed on the screen behind me. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold... I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know... That none of, excuse me, that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is God's word. Some of you guys have... Uh, at some point, I'm going to try not to trip over these this morning. Uh, so, some of you guys have had the privilege of receiving some sort of inheritance from a family member. Um, some of you, it's been something that's very valuable. Some of you, maybe it sets you up or it changed your life. 
Uh, for me, I want to tell you about my inheritance, the thing that I inherited from my grandmother. We call her Nana. Nana, if you're listening, sorry I didn't run the story by you first. There's reasons. But so uh, w- one day I was about, uh, I don't know, about, let's say 14 years old or so. And we're over at my Nana's house, my grandma's house. And there's family all around. And we're, you know, I'm sure she made a, a turkey and her dressing is what she did. And we were hanging out in the house. It's kind of after lunch is over. And she motions to me. She says, come here, come here son. I want to I talk to you. I, I got to show something to you. And she takes me back to her bedroom alone, just her and me. And she closes the door and she says, here, I want to give you something that has been in our family for years. It's been passed down from generation to generation. And now I'm passing it down to you because I'm her favorite. And, and, and so I, I'm like anxiously waiting to see what is grandma going to show me that's been passed down in our family for years and years and years from generation to generation. And why does she choose not to give it to her kids to give it to me? Like, well, what is going, what is this thing that I have been chosen to receive? And she pulls out this box and she opens the box and inside this box is a light bulb. Just a, like a, a light bulb that, that screws into, into a light socket, except it's a, it appears to be an old light bulb. Like, you, like it's, it's kind of thick, kind of smoky glass, and there's this kind of curl at the top where it looks like it was like maybe blown. And she says, this is the family light bulb. Does your family have a light bulb? So she said, this is the family light bulb. It is one of the first light bulbs ever made. And it has been passed down in our family from generation to generation. And the word is, it still works. But I've been too nervous to try it. And now I'm passing it on to you, my grandson. And I'm looking at this light bulb thinking, what kind of family are we that this is our, this is our, our the inheritance thing that we're passing down? And then I'm feeling like honored, like I'm the person who's been chosen to carry this light bulb to the next generation. One day I'm going to pass this on to my child or my grandchild. And so I take this bulb home and I pack it into a box with paper around it. And then I put that box into a drawer and I keep it there. And every, like every once in a while when I'm in that drawer as a teenager and I'm looking, I'm like, I'll pull it back out and look at the light bulb and make sure is the family light bulb still safe and sound. And it was, I'd never screwed it into a socket to see, but it's still safe and sound. Now, fast forward years later, I'm probably about 20, 21, 22 years old. And we're sitting at a table with my family, with my sisters and mom and whoever else. And we're we're talking, and I'm like, guys, I, I need to tell you something that I never told you guys before. Uh, Grandma passed down, Nana passed down the family light bulb to me. And everybody at the table looks at me with totally blank faces like, I don't know what the heck you're talking about. And so I run back to my room, and I pull out, out, of, the, out of my drawer, out of the box, and I bring this light bulb carefully to them and show them, like, Look what grandma gave to me. And my mom said, I have never seen or heard of this light bulb ever in my life. So at this point, I'm faced with a conundrum. I've had this light bulb in my possession for about six, seven, eight years at this point. I've been keeping it carefully safe in the box in the back of this drawer. And so I'm either faced with a, I'm either, I'm faced with with a choice. I have to either go to my grandma and ask her, is this thing really 
been in our family for generations? Or did you just find this somewhere and decide to pull one over on, on me and give it to me? Or like, is this really like a, a legit thing that just has been secret to the rest of the family that no one has ever heard about this thing before? And I decide I would rather not run this by her because I'm going to continue to pretend that this is the thing of actual value and beauty. And I'm going to pass it down to either Sophia or Landon years from now. And they're going to think of something. And eventually it is going to be the family light bulb because it is going to be our family inheritance. It is now. Now, you guys may have received something of more value or maybe it's not. Maybe you received uh, the family nose or the family chin. Maybe you received some family land. Maybe you received an awesome vase. Uh, Megan and I also received that from a, from a, a family member. Uh, awesome. It was a dolphin vase or swordfish, uh, which was really, really cool. Very sweet of them to give us. Very, very sweet. Maybe you've received a stock portfolio. Maybe you received some land or a stamp collection or something as actual value. And whether you value it or not, we've all received some sort of inheritance. Now, this passage, there's a connection. This passage that, that Allison read for us this morning is about an inheritance. It's about the most costly and therefore the most valuable and most precious inheritance that exists. And this passage is about how Paul treated that inheritance. And this passage is about, if you can stick with me through the coldness in this room, the 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 passage is also about how we, the question is, how do we treat this inheritance that's been passed down to us? And how will we treat it? And how will we then in turn pass it on to the generation after us? In Deuteronomy 32.9, it says, The Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted inheritance. Jesus's inheritance is his people. That's that kind of language all the way through the Old Testament. Whenever he speaks about his people, Israel, he calls them his inheritance or his heritage or his possession. They are his people. The people of God are Jesus's inheritance. The Lord's portion is his people and Jacob his allotted heritage or inheritance. And then we see that when Jesus came and remember he died on the cross and he rose again, that his inheritance was extended from just the people of Israel to all people of people from every nation and tribe and tongue and language. Psalm 2, 8, the father is saying to the son, that's the father God saying to the son, Jesus, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage or your inheritance and the ends of the earth, your possession. And then fast forward to the end of the book in Revelation eleven fifteen, it says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. God's people is Jesus's inheritance. He has purchased it, we see in our passage today, at great cost, the cost of his own blood. This is the key verse out of the passage that was read to us this morning. Uh, Acts 20, verse 28. Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves. And so all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which what he obtained with his own 
blood. Jesus died for the church. Not just for us in general, but he died in order to obtain or to purchase the church. We, if you are here this morning and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we, the people who are sitting here and the people who are worshiping God in some places colder than here, in some places they're nice and toasty, warm this morning, but wherever across the globe they're singing or listening to sermons and worshiping God this morning, we, the people of God, are Jesus' inheritance. He died for us, to obtain us, to purchase us for his own. He loves the church. It's his inheritance. It's his precious possession. Way more than that light bulb is for me. I still have it somewhere in the attic. Way more precious than that. Way more precious than any valuable inheritance that you may have actually received from your grandparents or parents. Way more precious. Why? Because of the cost at which it cost God, the blood of his son. And so because of that, Jesus loving the church to that extent, Paul loved the church to a great extent. He gave his life to care for the church and to spread so that more and more people will become a part of the church from City to city and region to region and country to country. He dedicated his life to it at great cost as we've been seeing in Acts. So the, through chapters now, we see that Paul has dedicated his life. He has poured out his life. He has been beaten. He's been stoned. He's been, we're going to see that he's shipwrecked. He's, he's been through so many amazing, terrible things in order, because, in order to build the church of God because Jesus loves the church. He, he paid for it with his own blood and therefore Paul loves it and he's dedicating his life to the church at great cost. He's been planting churches all across Asia. And as he's been planting churches, he ended up in Ephesus and he stayed there for three years, establishing the church in Ephesus. And now he's moving on from the region of Asia and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And as he's on his way, he calls for the elders that are at the church at Ephesus, the church that he planted, the church that he was there for three years among their midst, establishing it. And he has called them to himself because he wants to address them one final time before he moves on. In fact, at the end of it, he says, I know, I don't know exactly what lies ahead of me, but I know this, that you're not going to see my face again. This is the last address that Paul has to the Ephesian church. And in fact, it's interesting enough that uh, this is actually the only address that we have recorded in Acts that is to a group of Christians. All the other addresses that we have in Acts are two are directed to non-believers. It's the only address we have that is directed to Christians. It's about Paul's love for the church. It's about how Paul cared for the inheritance that Jesus bought for his own blood and had passed on to him. And now Paul is passing it on to the Ephesian elders saying, this great, costly, precious possession, this inheritance of Jesus, I'm passing on to you and you must care for it the way that I have cared for it, the way that Jesus has cared for it at great cost to himself and to me. We're going to look at Five things. There's so many things that are in this passage that we could cover that we just don't have time to. In fact, we're just going to look at a 30,000 foot level view of these five things. We're going to look at five things that Paul talks about uh, that are key to caring for and passing on the inheritance of Jesus, his church, his people. 
healthily and strongly to the next generation. First point is the church is planted and grows by the gospel. The church is planted and grows by the gospel. Look at how he starts off when he talks to the Ephesian elders when they're gathered. So we think that may have been even on a, sitting on a beach or a, a near, nearby where he actually is loading onto the boat. They're waiting for him to load and he is gathering here with the Ephesian elders. The last time he's going to see them and they're going to see him. You yourselves know how I lived among you. This is verse 18. The whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not, verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The church is not started anywhere. The church at Ephesus was not started by Paul. No man can truly start a church. The gospel is what creates life in humans who are dead and they're dressed dead in their trespasses and sins. And it's the gospel that creates or plants a church. The gospel is the only way that a church is ever, not only is it ever the way that it is ever started, but it's the only way it ever grows into anything. The, the thing that begins a church is not some guy who like, wants to get up and talk to people or people like to sit down and listen to him. It's not a church isn't planted by a cool band or nice programs or a great children's ministry or uh, cool parting gifts on your way out. Like nice t-shirts and logos and billboards. Like none of those are bad things, but a church is not built or started by any of those things. A church is built by and planted by the gospel the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf. That's what starts and plants a church. It's when that, is, that word is proclaimed to people who left to their own are dead in their trespasses and sins. And upon hearing it, all of a sudden find faith and life where there was none before. And they find that they now share more in common with each other than they do with even their own family members because they have been birthed, they've been born again into God's family are now a part of his family. The church is begun by the gospel. That's what is planted, planted by. That's what the foundation that it is built upon. And it's only the gospel that makes a church grow. Now, you can draw a crowd by doing lots of different things in a church. You can draw a crowd by having great programs and a great speaker and a great band. You can draw a, pro, a, a crowd by meeting in the right place and maybe having heat that's running or whatever the deal is. You can draw a crowd by lots of different ways. That doesn't necessarily make it a church. It doesn't make it not a church either. But it doesn't necessarily make it a church. A church is built and grows by the gospel. And as the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, and faithfully taught, and faithfully believed by the people in that church, and faithfully followed, and faithfully made a lifestyle of repentance and faith so that we grow as believers together. Faithfully as that happens, the people who are in the church grow, 
And the church adds to its numbers those who are being saved as the gospel is proclaimed. There will be some that will always find the message off-putting. There are some that will always find the message folly. There are some that will always find the message to be, uh, to, to be uh, against their own sensibilities and will recoil against it. But to some, it will be the sweet smell of life. The church, any church, is planted and grows by the gospel. Paul stresses this to the Ephesian elders. This is a, an address to elders and leaders in a church. So if you're a leader in any capacity, you need to really be reading this passage and thinking about it. But just to the, it's really uh, uh, informative and helpful and convicting to the whole entire church. Paul stresses the importance of the gospel. He says, I did not shrink. That means I did not, I, I knew that there were certain things that I was going to say that was not going to sit right with you. and was not going to sit right with the, with the culture that we were in. But I did not hesitate. I did not shrink back from teaching anything that was profitable and teaching it in the most public and private to everyone, both Jews and Greeks. He says again down in verse 27, 4, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And then he tells them to pay careful attention to themselves in the verse that we read. And then afterwards, he, he warns them. He says people are going to come in and they're going to try to pervert and draw people away from the gospel. But I commend you, verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. That's the gospel. The good news of who Jesus is and what he did on our behalf on the cross, I commend you to God and to the gospel, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. It's incredibly important that we as a church and we as individual believers never forget the central place that the gospel has or should have in our life and in our church. We may do lots of things as a church. We may and we should care for the poor. We should be caring for our neighbors. We should be doing, we should be involved in the community. There's a, a, a dozens and maybe hundreds of things that we should be doing individually as a church in our workplaces and in our communities. But they all, when they are healthy, spring from the bedrock of the gospel and can never replace it. The church is planted and it grows by the gospel. And secondly, we see that the church is watered by tears. The thing that really stands out in this passage, if you look at the words and look at how often certain phrases or words are said, is just how emotional this passage is. Now, it really shouldn't be surprising, right? I mean, Paul has spent three years. He's planted and begun this church. They've been through uh, life together. And now he's telling them he's not going to see them again. So it's not really, in, in, a lot of, in some ways, it's not shocking that it's an emotional passage. It's an emotional farewell. But it really is shocking and crazy just how emotional this passage is. So, to first of all, remember that these are grown men. These are grown men in a culture, in a society where showing weakness or showing emotion was not something that's valued. So uh, when my wife and I, we 
go, we don't see a lot of movies together, but uh, when we go to movies, I just be honest, like I'm the crier. Uh, so, so we, we sit there, I, I, we, what movie it was uh, a couple of years ago when the, remember when the help came out, uh, the, the movie, I, man, I, I love that movie. It, and, and I was sitting there watching with Megan and Megan looked over at me at one point and, and I, I was like, I wasn't just like a tear. I was like, like crying, like ugly cry. Like it just got me in my gut. And Megan, my wife starts mocking me in, in the movie theater that I'm the one crying sitting there. So I'll be honest. So, so I, I can like, it may still be not the most manly thing uh, in the world that that happened, but it's like in our society, it's not unheard of to see a, a man show emotion in this culture in a culture that's a shame based culture. To show weakness or to show emotion was not something that was valued in the slightest. And so when Paul, not only when they're sitting on the beachhead and they start uh, crying together when Paul says goodbye, but when Paul describes his time among them, it really stands out. He says in verse 19, I serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened. Further down, he says, I just lost my place, I'm sorry. Further down, he says that he had, that he had admonished them with tears. He would, as he was preaching them and teaching them, as he was correcting them, he did so Crying, he did so showing emotion. He did so deeply moved with his own care and love for them. And then whenever they, as he tells them this, and they're sitting on the beachhead, and and he says, you're not going to see my face again. It says they kneel down in verse 36, and they, he prayed with them, and there was much weeping that much weeping is it's, it's not just crying as they hug and they show emotion they say kiss each other and hug and cry this is like weeping it's like it's like my kind of watching patch adams ugly crying that was another movie i just cried at and Megan made fun of me in the theater like ugly crying emotion deep emotion all in a culture that wouldn't have that would not have valued emotion or weakness shown among men and what do these emotions that are showing us paul's describing his ministry among them as he's as he is serving them and he's crying as he's serving them as he's teaching them and he's crying as he teaches them and then as he gathers with these men that he lived among for three years and they are crying and weeping together what does it show it shows first of all that they were devoted to each other that paul was devoted to them and they were devoted to each other jesus is devoted to his church He died for it, as we already mentioned. Paul was devoted to Jesus' church, even if it wasn't always pleasant. And guys, let's just be honest. Church is not always pleasant. Living in community with each other is not always like fairy tales. It's not always butterflies and rainbows and unicorns and like sparkles everywhere. That's not what it's like. It is messy. There are misunderstandings. There are t- not just misunderstandings. There are times where we actually are wronged and wrong each other. That's the thing about, like, he's using language here. He calls the, he tells the Ephesian elders to care for the flock. He's describing us, the church, as sheep. And the thing about sheep is they're not all that 
uh, intelligent. Like they don't always know what they most, what is most needed at the time. I heard a story about a, a guy who grew up in a, a family in Scotland and they, they kept sheep and it was uh, one of the coldest nights of the year. And there was a blizzard on its way. And his dad comes into his room and says, we've got to go. We should have a Scottish accent. Wouldn't it be cool to have a Scottish accent? He, he comes and he tells him, Hey, we got to go. Some sheep got out and they're up on the top of the mountain and we got to go bring them down. I'd be like, just let them die. And he remembers to this day the picture of his dad leading him to the top of the mountain and them grabbing the sheep. And there was a a small one. And and he actually, his dad actually picked up that sheep and put him in his jacket to walk him down the mountain to get him down the bottom. And you know what? That sheep did not thank them for saving their life that night. They would certainly have died. The thing that she will, you can save a sheep. And they will turn around and bite you as you are saving them. Because they are not aware of what is most needed at the, at the moment. They can be ornery. They can be ignorant. And they can bite you whenever you're actually trying to help them. And that's what it's like oftentimes being a part of the church. We bite each other. We try to help each other. And we're not appreciative. We forget that we're on the same team. We backbite and we have a tendency to gossip and talk about each other. But Jesus is incredibly dedicated to you and me. When Jesus purchased your life by his blood, he didn't purchase your life and think, I really hope they're going to be perfect. He knew all the myriads of ways that you and I would mess up. He knew the ways that we would turn and run from him. He knew the ways that we would turn around and bite him whenever he was actually trying to help us. And he still was dedicated to his church. Paul writes a letter to the church at Corinth. And he's getting ready to light into them in 1 Corinthians for the really terrible things that they are doing and allowing as a church. But the way he starts off the letter is he says, I'm thanking God daily and continually for you, my fellow brothers and sisters. Paul was dedicated to the church that Jesus is dedicated for. And that created emotions as he was dealing with them and caring for them and serving them and preaching to them. And in the end, as he was parting away from them, are you devoted to his church. These kind of emotions that are stirred show a vulnerability. It shows a, a realness that's empowered by the gospel. We've talked about it continually here, but the, the thing that allows us in community to be, re, to be real with each other, to not have to put on a mask with each other, to let each other know just how, just how bad we're doing at times, how we're not doing well at home, our marriages are doing well, we're not doing great with our kids, I'm discouraged, I messed up, I'm sinning, I can't seem to get out of it. The thing that allows us to be real with each other is that we don't have to put on a mask by the power of the gospel because the gospel says that you are far worse off than you ever thought that you were but in christ you are far more loved than you ever dared to dream in fact it's only as we accept just how messed up we are and confess that to god and to our fellow believers that we that we are open ourselves up for the grace the unmerited favor of god to come in to actually change us 
So the depth that we dive down into our own garbage and our own mess is the depth that we experience the grace of God. And when that is going on in our hearts, then we can be real and vulnerable with each other. The last thing that it shows is that it shows a deep affection. Even though the people here were from different backgrounds and different generations, Paul came to Ephesus and he didn't know the Ephesus culture. And he preached not just, he, he says, not just to his own people or people who are like him, but he preached to both Jews and to Greeks in public and in private. All the whole word of God he preached and proclaimed to them. Think of how weird it would be for Paul, who before Christ was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, who kept all the laws, who would have viewed people who are outside uh, the Jewish culture to be, they would have considered them dogs, to now be ministering and eating among people who he once would have considered to be like that. The grace of God had had such an effect on his life that he was vulnerable with them, he was dedicated to them, and he had great affection for them. The church is planted and grows by the gospel. The church is watered by tears. The church is protected by humble and sacrificial leaders. The church is protected by humble and sacrificial leaders. Uh, Paul... As he lived in Ephesus, he lived and and set an open example to the believers there. He lived with them and among them. It's how he starts off his address to the Ephesian elders. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. So they lived with him, among him. They knew his life. He had been around them for three years. They knew if he had been faking the funk or if it was true and real and authentic. And they knew that he had worked tirelessly to support himself and the weak. He says in verse 34, you yourselves know how these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He preached and he taught tirelessly. He taught in public and he taught in private from house to house, meeting with them and hanging out with them. Having You can picture him having dinners with them and sharing the word of God with them over a meal or over a drink, over a coffee, hanging out with them day and night, public and private. He proclaimed all the word. He didn't shrink back to both Jews and to Gentiles. He was willing, he showed that he was willing to sacrifice his freedom and his life itself. He tells them, I'm going to Jerusalem and I don't know what's ahead of me, but I know that afflictions and trials await me. And he's also saying, perhaps I will lose my life itself. And he would end up not in Jerusalem, but later on in Rome, giving his life for the sake of the gospel. But he modeled that daily with the church at Ephesus, that he was willing to sacrifice his freedom and his life for for Jesus and for the church that Jesus loved and considers his inheritance. In doing so, he was following the footsteps of his Lord who didn't count his life as something to be grasped or held onto, but freely gave it for those who were not only lost 
in the trespasses and sins, but were set against him as treason, treason, commit, committers of treason. As I've been studying and thinking about this passage the past couple of weeks, um, it's really, I've been wrestling with it. I told Dale I've been wrestling with this morning, not, not just trying to figure out how to preach a sermon on it, but I've been wrestling with it personally. When I see Jesus' great love and commitment to his church, his inheritance, and I see Paul talk about how he lived with the church at Ephesus for three years, and he said, you have seen how I've lived among you, how I've sacrificed, and I proclaimed the whole word night and day to you, no matter what cost, and I know it's now going to cost me as I move on to the next season of my life. And it will end up costing him his life. I was convicted and am convicted. Just the casual nature that I often view even my responsibilities here among you. And I was wondering like, man, can I say with my life that I can say, hey, you yourselves know how I've lived among you these past four and a half years. And, and I pray that God would work in my heart and change me that I would, my heart would better reflect the heart uh, that Paul had for the church at Ephesus and that Jesus had for Paul and has for all of us. And I think that's a pattern that we, that we all should follow. As we read and look at this passage and see how, Paul worked hard to care for and then to protect the church. He, he was doing that night and day because he wanted them. He, he, he continually says in other letters, he wanted to make sure that whenever he got before the face of Jesus Christ, that they would be there as well. And that as many people as possible in Ephesus and the region surrounding it would hear it and would be there as well. So my question that I'm dealing with is where am I in this? Where is my heart in this? How does God need to work in and change my heart? And the question for all of us in this is where are you in this? Where is your heart in regard to this? As we see how Paul modeled leadership to the church at Ephesus for them and for us, the question is, are you leading the way that God has called you to lead? Are you aspiring to live like this? To live this kind of life for the sake of Jesus and his gospel and his church, which is his inheritance? And if God sees fit, are you willing to lead like this? And the truth is that God has seen fit probably on almost every single person in this room for you to lead in some capacity. In your home. With your spouse at your workplace, in your community group. Maybe you coach basketball in your church. Are you aspiring to live and to lead the way that Paul modeled for us? This isn't a call for super leaders. In fact, what Paul models in Ephesus is the exact opposite 
of a super leader. He says that he, that he was among them in tears. He's, show, he's showing weakness. Whenever he talks to the church at Corinth, he says, you know how I was among you in great weakness. It's a call, not for super leaders, but it's a call for humble, broken, weak leaders who are simply willing to follow Jesus. It's not a call for heroic leaders. God God doesn't need, nor has he put out a call for super leaders. But there is a call and a desperate need for leaders who follow their leader, their hero, their leader. In their own weakness, in their own humility. Willing to sacrifice and give their freedom and, if necessary, their life for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the church, which is his inheritance. The church is planted and grows by the gospel. The church is watered by tears. The church is protected by humble and sacrificial leaders. And quickly we see the church was threatened from without or is threatened from without and within. It's not a great mystery that if the church is Jesus' inheritance, that it would have a great big target on it, would it? Wouldn't the enemy of God target Jesus' inheritance to try to submarine and blow up the whole thing? And we see that the attacks come from everywhere. In verse 28, when Paul tells the elders to pay careful attention to themselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers, afterwards he said, I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in. So that's people from the outside will come in from among you, not sparing the flock. There will be attacks from the outside, inside, that will try to pull members of the flock away. And then it will also come from within, verse 30, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. To draw away the disciples after them. The attacks come from outside and they come from inside. But the thing is that the the reason they work is that they always sound and feel correct. It's a distortion of the truth by somebody inside the church or somebody outside the church. It's a distortion of the gospel from inside or outside the church. that ends up being a distortion of Jesus, of who he is and what he did for us on our behalf. It comes in as a a flattering compliment. Somebody uh, starts to try to draw people away after themselves because they want to feel better about themselves. So they want to get followers after them. So they flatter you and they build up a contingent inside the church that's like, like that's their own kind of cheer squad. And slowly before you, what they're saying sounds right and true. Before you know it, like there's divisions created inside the church from within. Or from without. It comes in as a bit of gossip. A disparaging story about somebody. It comes in as a tasteful teaching. Paul elsewhere tells people to watch out. Because people will come later on. With words that are meant to draw you in. That sound sweet to your ears. That tickle your ears. And draw you after them. Because it sounds good. And it sounds right. It makes you feel good. 
like a sheep following after a false shepherd. All of a sudden, before you know it, you're trapped in a place that you did not intend to be. And you've been drawn away from the flock of God. It's sneaky and it always sounds correct and true. So how can that be combated? By what he tells the Ephesian elders, he says, be careful about yourself. What he's saying is that you need to take a heart check of yourself. Continually and regularly. And see, if I'm involved in a lot of stuff, life is busy, right? I might be involved in church and I've certainly got work stuff going on. And whatever family or friend kind of, kind of calls on my time that I have, that I'm not being careful about myself and checking my heart and doing a, a, a checkup on myself to see where is my heart in relation to God. I have an accountability friend in, in Charleston and we talk, we try to talk once a week and he'll ask me, how are you doing? And it's probably the hardest question I answer every week. Because I can go for hours and days and weeks if nobody asks me without ever having asked myself, how am I doing? Where is my heart right now? How are my spiritual levels right now? How are my emotional levels right now? How are my physical levels right now? He says, be careful, be careful or pay attention to yourself. But he also says, be alert with each other. When Cain had committed murder with Abel and God comes to Cain and he approaches him and he confronts him. Cain says, I don't know where Abel is. How would I know? Am I my brother's keeper? And the truth is that we are. If we are members of God's household and his church and his inheritance, the people that you look at here as we have coffee and we tear down afterwards and we sit around in our community groups each week and we look each other in the eye, that is somebody that God shed his blood for. Are we caring for each other? That means caring for the people who are hurting, weeping with those who weep. It also means when, you, when we see each other kind of straying off the line that we lovingly and humbly come in and help them get back online. We don't just say, well, I hope that they find their way. But we know that we have a responsibility to them as they have a responsibility to us, to us. We do so by remembering how the inheritance has been passed down from Jesus to Paul to the Ephesian elders. And down as it's been passed down all the way to us today at great cost. First of all, to, to Jesus himself, and then to all the people, the Pauls and the elders here that are unnamed who gave their life for the sacrifice for the church and year and generation upon generation have given their life for God's inheritance, the church. It can be combated by admonishing and encouraging each other to the word of God's grace with tears. That means great humility and personal devotion. Lastly and quickly, we see that the church is planted and grows with the gospel. It's watered by tears. It's protected by humble and sacrificial leaders. It's threatened from without and within But lastly, and this should be a great encouragement to us this morning, the church is matured by God himself.
as Paul is saying goodbye to them. And he tells them to pay attention to themselves and to the flock. Then in verse 31, he says, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. This is the key. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Listen to this good news, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It's God himself and the word of his grace. It's the gospel and this, the whole content of his word given us to in scripture that it's God himself and the word of his grace which is able to build up the church and to give us an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So hear that. The inheritance by God's grace and by his work, the inheritance, that's us, the church, is given an inheritance by God himself. And he began it in Christ, and he will see through it to the end. We have a role to play, but not the definitive role. The definitive role is Jesus Christ, who is now currently the active head and Lord of the church, who is still committed to his church and still loves it. And he's going to see it flourish and grow into all that he is destined and commanded for it to be. So as we close, here's our questions. How do you see the church? Do you see it as Jesus' precious inheritance? Do you love it? And not just in general, like I love the church at large, or even I love this church, but do you love it? Picture the people, the faces, even the ones that drive you absolutely batty. Do you love them? Are you devoted to the church the way Christ was and Paul was? And if so, what's your role there? The church is Jesus' inheritance. is purchased with his blood. He's actively working in it now and he will see through it to the end. Let's be devoted to the church the way he is and he was. For his glory and for our joy. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.